Lord, everyone. Before everybody's seated, if you're sitting in the back, I'd like to invite you to come a little closer. Uh, I'm going to start putting the, uh, for the 9 a.m. service, I'm going to start putting the drapes back up back there because uh, you're too far away and I have room right up here by Mike on the very front row. And then you would be right, you would be right in front of Pastor Anthony and he would be able to keep an eye on you. You know, no, God bless you all. We love you. Um, all, all churches have natural uh, kind of sequences of attendance. Sometimes the 11 a.m. service is packed and the 9 a.m. is, you know, how that flows. I'm just thankful it didn't rain today. I successfully play, prayed all the rain on Saturday. And so I'm thankful for that. But I want to speak affection to all of you today. You're amazing people. I love you. Uh, I pray God's blessing upon you. I want to help you today, if at all. Um, I'm not a celebrity singer or preacher. I'm not a model. Um, I have a 100% verified dad bod. Uh, I'm just a normal person here to try to help somebody, to try to bless somebody. And if I can do it, I want the Lord to do it. I have a couple of things I want you to be aware of. Um, I have been, in my spirit, uh, very moved uh, over the last two or three weeks um, because of this realization. Um, Our young people, children and teenagers, need uh, a chance to flourish scripturally, uh, biblically, with understanding and the like. And uh, I realize that typically, and this isn't my numbers, this is uh, national numbers, um, a church has young people, your young people, <laughs> um, about 30 hours a year. Um, maybe that's just based on average attendance across uh, the nation. About 30 hours a year. Well, now some of that is gathering, some of that is having fun, some of that is greeting people. Um, so actual instruction time for the average is, is probably less than 15 hours a year. Um, and so as a church, we have to empower parents to have spiritual conversations with their children. Um, You look at the same families and you look at how much time parents have with children over a year uh, where they're together and they are basically unstructured. Uh, They can do different things. That's between three and 5,000 hours a year in which parents have unstructured time uh, without obligations uh, with their children. Um, that's, uh, there's no way the church can compete with your time. We have 30, 20 to 15 to 20 hours a year, uh, and you have your children 3,000 to 5,000 hours of unstructured um, time. And so um, I, I, the, the first kids just doesn't have enough time. Bull just doesn't have enough time. And so what can we as a church do is we can try to empower you to have at least one, probably ideally two, um, conversations with your kids um, a week where you're able to talk about uh, the, the, what happened to church, talk about what's going on in their life, talk about what's going on in the world, and do so from the biblical, um, listening to them, not dominating them, uh, you know, but listening to them. So we are starting a project here at First Church where every week, um, because I preach different sermons now in every service, um, I preach different nine, 11, and two in Concord. They're all different. Um, I do that because, for example, we move around a lot. The team, uh, we have a lot of people who work different services. Um, also, I need some of you to help us in Concord. We're still under that 
that that important psychologically important 70 mark over there and so whatever we can do to fill that room up uh, helps us um, but I understand I'm asking for a lot um, it's not I'm not asking for myself I'm asking for the kingdom of God can I have an amen yes. But in the 11 o'clock service, we're going to take that sermon that's preached in the 11 o'clock service, and we're going to turn it into a discussion guide uh, where you can have something to sit down with your kids at least once during the week and talk about. We want to empower you to take the subjects, the themes, the doctrines from the service um, and be able to talk to your kids about it. Now, I know most of you in the 9 o'clock service uh, perhaps do not have children um, uh, in first kids or bold, um, those parents tend to be in the 11 a.m. service, but I want you to know what's going on. I don't know if they have the link up that they can show, if they have that link up. If we don't have it up today, we've just started this, it will be up soon. I want you to know what's going on. So my title today is Anointed Like David. I want to read from First uh, Samuel chapter number 13, verse number 14. Uh, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the commander or the leader over his people. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Uh, I, I have really been in church my whole life, and I'm not saying I've been uh, where I need to be my whole life, but I've been in church. It's much to your surprise. I know you didn't know this, but it's possible to be backslidden in church. Uh, smile at your neighbor and say, that part might be for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, so the point being, we're just having fun, relax. I'm making Pastor Don nervous, but it might be for him. He was out front for the whole. He just came in, but didn't come out and worship at all. He just slipped in the last minute. Maybe that was for Pastor Don. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I'm just having fun. It was your turn, brother. I've already, I already picked on Anthony this morning, so... Um, the idea is my, my whole life I have heard the church celebrate the unique anointing of David. Um, how many of you remember this song? When the Spirit of the Lord, when the Spirit of the Lord moves upon my heart, I will dance like David danced. When the Spirit of the Lord moves upon my heart, I will dance like David danced. I will dance, I will dance. You guys know what I'm talking about. The church for many, many years has celebrated the unique anointing, the unique gifting that was upon uh, David. Uh, I have thought a lot about that because it's the uniqueness of David is not that he's perfect. It's not that he's sinless. In fact, we know more about his embarrassing sins uh, than a lot a lot of other people. In fact, uh, to take this further, let me say that um, David, the greatest worship leader who has ever lived, spent much of his life in a state of being, um, he would not have been qualified to be a worship leader in the average church. <laughs> now you think about this. Now, um, there has to be there has to be restitution and restoration in the church, or we're going to have to kick David out of the role of worship leader. You understand what I'm saying? Um, I, I know that's not much talked about, and I am I am fairly I am fairly uh, strict uh, in that regard. And I, since it's just us here today, I'll take a moment to talk about this. 
Um, it is uh, very human to fall into sin. It's very human to fall into lust. You're not a particularly dem- demonic individual when you struggle with lusts of the flesh. It just means you have a heart beating inside a rib cage. That is lusts of the flesh. There has to be a way for us to continually fight that battle and turn our hearts back to God, or we need to go ahead and cancel the church service because none of us can be saved. There has to be within our hearts and within our lives uh, room for a mercy seat whereby the blood of covering is sprinkled as a righteousness impartation to us flawed sinners. Um, I believe in restoration for leaders. I believe in restoration for... Uh, for pastors. I believe in restoration for evangelists. I I do. There is one exception to that rule, and that is whenever they use their place in order to fulfill their lusts, uh, then it's more than a lust of the flesh. It's an abuse of power. And you put them in a situation where they're using God's place of the place God has put them and God's anointing upon them to scratch their own back. They're using God to do what their flesh wants to do. That's not just a weakness of the flesh. That is an abuse of power and authority. And in those situations, I have argued in ministerial councils, those, that is the situation where a person should not be restored. When it's not, not they, I'm not saying not to be saved. I'm saying they should no longer be placed in a pastoral role. Why? Because they use God to they, 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 let's be honest. Let's be honest. Um, there is a certain authority in place that is given to pastors and ministers, and um, they are held in a higher regard than they would. Let's put it this way. They're more attractive preaching on Sunday than they would be out in the club. And so now they're using their gifting in God, the place God has put them, to raise the quality of their, how shall we say, going to attract bees to honey. Okay, this is an abuse of power, and so in this regard, I don't think that it is a uh, it's a good idea to put them back in a pastoral role. That's just my personal um, uh, stance on that. But I don't think I've ever shared it with you guys, and uh, so I, I, I've shared it with you now. If you want to know where I stand on that issue, um, so the. Uh, the, the reality of David is David had to find a place of uh, repentance. He, he had to get through his falling. The uniqueness of David's anointing is not that he was a righteous. He was not righteous. He was a sinner who needed to repent of his sins. Can I have a big yes? Uh, the uniqueness of David was not even that he was talented. There's lots of talented people who cannot keep their uh, selves in uh, order. Um, his uniqueness was not talent. His uniqueness was not purity. His uniqueness was not sinless understanding of divine insight. His uniqueness was that his heart longed for the same things that God's heart longed for. That's the uniqueness of David, not perfection. But if you gave him God-like power, he would strive to create the same kind of world that God would create. His heart is after God. Uh, It was in his spirit, in his mind, to love that that which God loved. So if you think about the commandments of God's heart, he set his heart to obey. And even when he failed, he did not excuse himself. Watch. He did not make a case against God. He simply repented. Oh, that's some wisdom right there. 
He simply repented. He did not explain why it was really someone else's fault. He did not come up with a narrative where someone did him wrong song. And, and he didn't say, well, everybody in the church does it. I just do what everybody does. Uh, he simply acknowledged that his heart was not of God. And what does he do? He repents. He repents. I pray that God would give us that heart like David. Secondly, he studied and in some way embraced the emotions of God's heart. He focused, watch this, he focuses on understanding the emotions of God. God is not a cloud bank in the distance. He's not an algorithm in the heavens. He's a person. Now, he's not a person in the set, in the, in the way we are. We are a subset of a larger whole. We are a person within a larger whole. God is the opposite type of person. He is the larger whole, and we all exist in him. Now, I hope, I know that's, uh, okay, well, maybe we'll talk about that later. It's, why is it important? Because God is a person. He has a personality. He loves certain things. And he hates certain things. And David seeks the heart of God. He seeks to understand and respond to the emotions of God. That enables him to serve the purpose of God because he sought the heart of God. Uh, there's lots of people who know the law of God, but they don't know the heart of God. That's why the religious uh, leaders and elders of Israel would bring a woman caught in adultery. Do they know the law? Yes. Is God the law? No. God gave the law. And the law was for your sakes, that you might be educated of what? His righteousness, your need of mercy. <clears throat> uh, they knew the law of God, but they, <clears throat> they did not understand the heart of God. Uh, David, he sought to obey and understand the commands of God. He sought to celebrate and love the law of God. Uh, but what he really succeeded at more than perhaps anyone else in all the scripture was his passionate pursuit of the heart of God. He knew uh, the heart of God. That enabled him to live the purpose of God. And he sought God's fullness for his life and for his uh, generation. That is the uniqueness of David. So if we were able in some way to succeed in the same manner, that King David succeeded it, it would look somewhat like this. Not that I'm a better Christian than everybody, but my heart, even in the quiet places, even in the fantasy life, we all, don't act like you don't have a fantasy life. You may indulge it by playing the lottery. That's how most people indulge their fantasy life. They play the lottery. It's like a vacation. It's not about the ticket. It's about you being able to imagine what you would do if you won. That's the entertainment that they're selling with a lottery ticket. What you would do if I won. And it's fun. Me and my wife used to do it driving down the road. We traveled a lot. Ten years we drove. And we were always going to win $44 million. $44 million on what we were going to do. I want you to know every church that we went to where we loved their heart, we loved the people, we are, we're going to build them a church. <laughs> the next church. We built churches in our imagination for half the churches that we ever visited. It's the fun of the, the 
imaginary, the fantasy life. But some of our fantasy lives, (laughs) come on now, it's about to get quiet in here. It don't look nothing like Jesus. (laughs) That fantasy life, you may be, I don't know, well, I better stop right there. The uniqueness of King David is that even in the silent places of his heart, he craves what God craves. And if God had given him power and authority, the same thing would have happened as if God himself had done it. That's why the Lord could speak to him and say, your house is going to endure forever. Your kingdom will not come to an end. When I come as a lamb of God for sinners lame, I'm coming through your heart, your house, your lineage. I've been praying for that lately. I I want you to know I'm a a long way from it. Um, I haven't been, I haven't been uh, doing as, 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 as good as David did. Um, But I think that is what real godliness is. I think that is real godliness to be like him, to want what he wants, to crave what he craves. Um, As a pastor, I can claim, I can claim, claim the things that would feed the vanity even of my role. I could, I can claim the vanity even of my role to be a, a superstar preacher, to have this huge influence. God has not chosen that for me because God knows that probably would kill me. He waited it out. Um, I could claim some type of financial independence. Everybody craves that. Um, That usually uh, is not the best path for us. What's usually the best path for us is stewardship and then those things. You see, if you earn a million dollars, the most important thing is not the million dollars. That can come and go. The most important thing is the person you became and the lessons you learned while you were earning that. And if you learned those lessons and became that person, you can lose the money and you can rebuild it again. David has this passion for the presence of God, the heart of God. And I, oh, my brothers and sisters, I, I think that, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm being as, as transparent as I can be. I actually think if you really want to be godly, I think that is, is the path. That is the way where even if God deified you and gave you his authority and his righteousness and his power, and you could call 10,000 angels, your heart would would still create a world of love, hope, and regeneration like he has. Jehovah has become my salvation. Yeshua, the hope of Yeshua, he has become my hope, my salvation. If I had his power, we would be doing the same thing that he is doing. This is the anointing of David. This is the anointing of David to have a heart after God. David found his identity, his sense of personal value and success in who he was in his relationship with God. And he learned to measure his success by how he grew in grace to walk in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose the presence of God because it's what he wanted. Not if he was worthy. You see, if you choose the presence of God for your life when you are worthy, you won't pray when you're mad. You won't pray when you're sad. You won't pray when you've had a bad weekend. You'll just pray when you had a righteous weekend. 
and you were goody two-shoes. That's not what you see in the life of David. What you see in the life of David is he has prayers when he's depressed. He has prayers when he's a sinner. He has prayers when he's mad enough to kill everybody. He brings every part of himself, broken, lowly, imperfect, and sinful, into the presence of God and says, here I am. This somehow is a unique insight in what it means to walk with him, to be a man or woman after his heart. Our relationship with God consists of who we are before God as one loved by God and as one who loves God in response to that love. The motivation is I love him. I love everything he represents. I love everything that he loves. I I, look, I, don't look at me. I, this isn't about me. This is about I choose him. Amen. Let's be honest. I have some seasons in my life when I'm more spiritual than other seasons. Amen. One of the hardest things is to keep teenagers prayed through when they have finally grown into their tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they are living in the reign of cynicism and criticism. They've grown into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're living out this reality. I will decide for myself. I'm tired of what my parents tell me. I'm tired of what the preacher tell me. I'll decide for myself. They have, and you're like, what went wrong? Well, they grew into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they lost the innocence of a child. It's a living lesson for all parents. Now you know how God feels. And so they, uh, there are certain seasons of our life we do better than other seasons. One of the hardest seasons of our life is, uh, first of all, the teenage years. Because, I'm sorry for picking on you beautiful teenagers right here. I love you. You're awesome. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. Well, that wasn't true, but it sounded sweet anyway. So I love you. I adore you. Um, the, the, the point I'm trying to say is in that age group, there's this, ter- there's this who am I? Um, am I accepted? Am I celebrated? What's my stock price in the stock market? Sorry, guys. They look down. That's a bad sign. You guys are all have very high stock prices. You're all stinking beautiful, okay? So let's move along since I'm picking on my teenagers here, okay? But you're trying to figure... And, and then what's the worst is now comes college. Look, we have to... Look, don't, don't kill your college-age kids. Don't kill them. Don't kill them. They take all of themselves. Encourage them to take all of themselves, perfect and imperfect, good and bad. Take it all into the presence of God. You say, well, I don't feel like praying. I haven't been a prayer type person. All right, go pray about not being a prayer type person. Take all of yourself. I seek what God represents. I seek his presence. I hunger for that. The worst thing a church can do to, honestly, this is just me here, I think one of the worst things, trying to speak precisely, is to create a culture where we're deciding who's good enough. That is so spiritually unhealthy. There's a term for that. We call it death culture. I call it death culture. Why do I call it that? Because the letter killeth. But the Spirit gives life. This, this, this habit of trying to find out who's good enough. Who is good enough. And um, I understand. I've been in this my whole life. I'm not young anymore. I'm in my 50s. I'm, in the, I'm on, the, on the conservative slide. You understand what I'm saying? And I still believe with every fiber of my being, once a church creates a who's good enough culture, yes. something dies. Yes. 
I'm not saying that we don't have order in the church. We have order in the church. I'm not saying that we don't have uh, 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 obvious lifestyle choices that are right and wrong. I'm just saying the motivations behind all of this matter. So uh, back to David. I'm, I'm, I'm off. How am I doing? Oh, I got hours to preach. We're okay. So um, <clears throat> David has a very unique anointing, and I want to learn from the anointing. Lord, help me to do a good job here today. Help me to seek what David sought. Help me in some way to see you with the sincerity of a passion for your presence, a hunger for your character. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, David had three anointings. He's unique. Uh, most, anoint, most individuals in the Bible are anointed once. Uh, David was anointed three times. He was anointed first in Bethlehem. Uh, you could think of this as anointed in front of his family, where first his family sees uh, God's love compassion, uh, favor, and blessing upon David. And first, his family knows that he has a gift of leading worship. It's first your family who sees who you really are. You can fool outsiders, but your family will know. Your family will see. Your family will, your family will perceive you. They're close enough where they, they see the whole of you. They see not theoretical love. They see practical love. They see where the tire meets the ass fault. And so this is the first anointing in David's life, an anointing that is seen by his family. God sees and the family sees, but the family is struggles to understand this. And so it is in every one of your life. Your family will struggle to see God's favor upon you. They cannot get out of trying to think of you in terms of comparisons and competitions. You have a place. If you get out of your place, they're not happy about it. But it's first your family who sees. They're going to, it's going to be a while before they accept. It's going to be a while. You're going to have to live in the identity of who God says you are, not the identity of who your family says you are. And if you cannot break out of the prison of other people's opinion who are close to you, you are never going to stand in the, uh, the tsunami of anointing like David did because he had to live, uh, unfortunately, a long time years where he is living out this reality. I am anointed. The prophet knows it. God said it, but my own family won't accept it. Some of us never get out of that. Um, it is a challenge for all ministers. It's a challenge for all leaders. Let's say you start a small group. People will come. Some of them will like the way you do things. Some people won't. The ones who won't will quit coming, and some of them, because they live in the tree of knowledge of evil, in other words, their daily bread is cynicism and criticism, they will have a lot to say about how you do it wrong. They will not talk about whether or not they can do it better. They will talk about whether or not they like the way you did it. That will hurt you. Now what? If that's all it takes for you to lose your identity, then you're never going to go to the next level of spiritual importance and anointing. It's first the family who cannot receive your anointing, and they mock you when you bring them bread and cheese to the battlefield, and they laugh at you when you are willing to do great things, and when you claim a Goliath, they want to tell you to hush and go home. 
anything you try to do. You can uh, do uh, sell candy bars for Jesus and uh, give the money to some worthy nonprofit. There'll be people who don't like the way you do it. Are those people enough uh, for the same thing for churches? No church has all the same gifts. Uh, other, some churches do certain things better than other. It's God that threads it all together. Different preachers have different styles. They have different manners of communication. They will attract different people. We've got to get out of the idea of they're good and we're bad or we're good and they are bad. The people who don't like the way we'll do it, they will have comments about us. If we let them steal our identity, in Christ, do you see what I'm saying? Then we will never get to the next anointing. And so David is first anointed in Bethlehem in front of his family. You can read about it in chapter 16 of uh, 1 Samuel. Um, This is very much about his identity, and it's very much about his character becoming, because after he's anointed, he goes back to the sheepfold. He does not get elevated. He does not get celebrated. He does not get famous. Even his family struggle to accept him and will not accept him. His older brothers are irritated by the memory of the whole thing. Why? Human nature, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're stuck in cynicism and criticism. I don't know who he thinks he is. Um, This is human nature. And so if he cannot keep his identity in this anointing, then he's stuck right here. He has to keep his identity and more, he has to keep his eyes on God. If he focuses on his elder brothers, he will stop singing. If you focus on your elder brothers, you will stop worshiping. You will stop praising. You will stop singing. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Go back to your quiet places and say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He le- you, get, you understand what I'm trying to say? This is the anointing of Bethlehem, the anointing of the family. Um, I'm not going to get through this today. I, there's so much here. Um, so let me just try to speed up a little bit and go into second gear. Uh, the second anointing in David's life is in Hebron, and you can read about this 2 Samuel uh, chapter number 2. And this is, uh, this is uh, the first acknowledgement of uh, the people outside the family of his place and his anointing. He's anointed in Hebron and he is anointed king of Judah here. And so you can think of this. If his first challenge was in the place of the family, he's anointed in the place of the family. Uh, The second challenge is he's anointed in the place of the tribe. Uh, He's anointed in Hebron and there uh, he steps into a a place of status and position, uh, and yet, in spite of that place, uh, there is a larger a grouping of people that cannot accept him in that role. They will not accept him. They will reject him, and more, they will try to kill him. His enemies are uh, more than elder brothers now. His enemies are competing uh, kings and competing royal houses and lineages. His kingdoms now are Philistines and Moabites. His his, his enemies now are much bigger and he has a different identity now. That identity is he is no longer questioned by his elder brothers. He's moved beyond that limiting crab bucket of uh, cynicism and criticism. But he is not out of the fire. He's in a different kind of fire now. And that is this. He has to not prove that he is able 
able to lead successfully in a small setting, he has to be able to lead many people to the same victory that he has experienced himself. He has to learn how to govern, lead, and deliver God's people without losing his identity in who he was. In other words, the problems are bigger now, but what he's supposed to be looking at is the same. Keep your eyes on God. Take your fears to prayer. Keep your eyes on God. Don't forget, what if David had stopped writing worship when he was in the middle mile of his journey? What if he stopped writing poetry here in the middle mile? Sure, I did it when I was a shepherd. I had more time then. You ever hear that? Lord knows I've said it. I had more time then. I had more time then. Uh, Now I just don't have time. It doesn't seem as important to me. Isn't it amazing that David's anointing in each stage... ways of God. And time with God is still absolutely fundamental to who he is. So you've seen his anointing in the place of family. Then you see the trials that are family trials. Now he steps into the place of a, a tribe, not just a family. And here the problems are bigger. The, the, the enemies are stronger. Uh, but it is the second anointing and he keeps his eyes on who God is, the heart of God, the ways of God. And this leads him to chapter 5, where David is anointed in Jerusalem. This is not the anointing of family. This is not the anointing of tribe. This is the anointing of the nation. Anointing of the nation. Uh, You see this uniqueness in his life. And at each stage, you find that he does not stop seeking after the presence of God. It is not what he does, it is who he is. If it's what you do, you'll do it when you have time and energy. If it's who you are, you'll never stop doing it because it's not about time or energy. It is about who I am. This is the uniqueness of David. This is the anointing of David, my brothers and my sisters. This is what makes him a man after God's own heart. This continual seeking after God. My challenges change. My resources change. My circumstances change. There's ups and downs to my life. There's pain and sorrow. There's joy and tears. There's happiness and sadness, but I never stop seeking the presence of God, and I never stop seeking the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord. I want to, uh, if I can, talk about this just for a moment, um, because um, we must seek to know the beauty of the Lord. When I say know the heart of God, I am really saying to seek the beauty of the Lord, because God is not a man or a woman like uh, we are here. God is not like us. He exists in a realm of the spirit, which although we have access to it, it's not the same as that which we know through our senses. And we spend time with people and we get to, we get to know them. Uh, how do you get to know someone? You have to listen. Somebody say, listen. The only way to get to know someone is to listen. 
If you're trying to get to know somebody by talking, you are failing. They're getting to know you. The only way you get to know them is to listen. Uh, one of the reasons why we uh, sometimes struggle to have uh, deep friendships um, is because we, we never learned either the art or the discipline of listening to people. And as we get older, we have less time and energy, and we get more grumpy. <laughs> and so the opportunity to create deep friendships is less and less and less. The deepest friendships are the friendships you have over the years where you walk with somebody. You knew what they wanted and desired and wished for in high school, say. Uh, you knew what broke their heart in high school, and then you stayed in contact through college. You know what they longed for through college. You knew what broke their heart in college. Then you are, uh, say, in your early married years to get, you understand what I'm saying here. You've walked with them. You got to know them by listening. Uh, the way to get to know God is listening. How do you do that? There's a way that is very clear, and that is the word of God to us to spend time considering, reflecting upon the word of God and to rightly divide it, to put it in order, to place things that belong with Old Testament judgment with Old Testament judgment, to place things that belong to the joy of salvation with the joy of salvation. What a strange thing to say, to rightly divide the word of God. But it's not an accident of an author. This is exactly what we must do to perceive the heart of God. People who don't rightly divide the word of God, they'll get some horrible Old Testament example of judgment or war, and they'll bring that all the way in the New Testament, and they'll say, that's what we ought to do to people. And you're like, uh, you're, really? I mean, um, you, so they know this story. They know this quote-unquote example. They know the law, but they've missed the heart of God, and they live in that place of uh, deciding judgment for others. Uh, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You deciding judgment for others. Um, God, help us to have the innocence of a child, the innocence of just loving the presence of God, not being aware of our incompletenesses, not celebrating other people's errors and sin, but simply to be overwhelmed with the love that we have a heavenly Father who is there to save us from our sins. Uh, there's so there's there's more. We have to seek the beauty of the Lord. We have to seek the beauty of the Lord. We have to seek the beauty of the Lord. I have to perceive that God was so broke, so sad over the broken world that He decided to die that we might be saved through Him. That's the heart of God. I have to see that. I have to see Him speaking to uh, the judger, saying, uh, "If you yourself are." worthy to be a judge, you have no sin. You can cast the, the first stone. But um, if you're not worthy of being uh, uh, the judge, what I need you to do is I need you to zip it and I need you to get up out of here. Um, and so what does Jesus do? He says, look, you guys who have appointed yourself judges, are you worthy of it? If you've broken any of it, you deserve the judgment of all of it. Are you sure? Come on now. You want to do this? And he writes in the dust. And they say, mm, I think you may have a point there. And from the eldest to the youngest, they slip away. 
And then he says this, where are your accusers? This is the gospel in a nutshell. Where are your accusers? And she said, watch, I have none, Lord, but there's one there who can judge. And what does he say is the greatest gift in the story of Christianity and in the testimony of the heart of God? What does he say? Neither do I condemn thee. This is the good news. Neither does God condemn you. Be motivated by that love. Be moved by the heart of God and say, that's that's what's going to save the world. Hate's not going to save the world. We hate each other so easy. We hurt each other so willingly. We kill each other with such glee and evil. Oh, the broken heart of humanity, so willing to make the innocent pay, so willing to intentionally kill families and kill children, so willing, so willing. We are ever so ugly judges. But we have a picture of our creator who is actually the one worthy to be a judge. And he steps into our life and he says, neither do I condemn thee. Think of this as the great second chance of your life. Neither do I condemn thee. Think of this as the great third chance of your life. How many times should we forgive, O Lord? Seven would be a good number. We have an Old Testament precedent for that. And the Lord says, no, I say to you, 70 times seven. Do you hear the great song of hope across all of humanity, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Uh, The uniqueness of David's, and I'm not going to get through this. Magicians come. I I need to start wrapping up here. Um, There is more than this in in the life of David. David was anointed to live in three different uh, appoint, uh, to, to minister in three different appointed offices. Remember, he had three anointings, and he had to grow into those anointings because at every one of them, there was challenges that were unique to that. Uh, he had family who could not receive him, and then he had a, he crossed that uh, river of trouble, and then he had the house of Judah, and uh, he was accepted by the people who had earlier resisted. They may not like him, uh, but he had moved beyond that troubles. You see, most of us, uh, let me just say this, most of you don't uh, fix the people who don't like you. You just outgrow them. Does that make sense? You don't, you don't, you don't fix people's uh, malevolent hearts. You just outgrow it. Uh, this is what David does. He just outgrows it. Um, interesting in the life of David, I think you'll see that his immediate family were never great warriors around him. Have you ever thought about that? David had men who believed in him, men who would jump into a snowy pit and fight a lion for him. He had men who would go into enemy-held, Philistine-held ground to Bethlehem and bring back a drink of water for him. He was surrounded by great men, but they weren't his brothers. He moved to this level of tribal, and then finally he stands in the role of a king and the nation is his responsibility. But in another way, he is anointed to three offices. He is anointed to the role of a king, anointed to the role of priest, and anointed to the role of prophet. David will fulfill all of these. As kings, we rule in life. It's the will of the Lord that what you have responsibility for prospers and flourishes. That is to rule as royalty. You have responsibility not just for you to do well. Your kingdom, your 
how your household. This is flourishing. This is the role of kings. We rule in life. This is an anointing for you. You read about it in the book of Revelations. We, as uh, those having received the great anointing and promise of God, we rule as kings and priests. And you see this in uh, the life of the Christian where we have the ministerial gift of prophecy. Um, We rule in life as kings. Now, as priests, we minister. We minister to God and we minister to others. And finally, as prophets, we speak God's word. We speak God's word. Sometimes it is a word of revelation of that which hasn't happened. Sometimes it is a word of revelation of that which has happened. But we live in these three roles just as David. And that is why the New Testament church is a continuation, a restoration of the tabernacle of David. We gather in the same manner as the tabernacle of David. You know why we clap our hands? Because that's how they worshiped in the tabernacle of David. You know why we lift our hands? If you haven't been through first steps, go through it. We go through all of this. Uh, We lift our hands because that's how they did it in the tabernacle of David. You know why we have all kinds of instruments? Because that's how they did it in the tabernacle of David. They lifted their voice. They clapped their hands. They danced like David. They shouted like David. It was spontaneous sometimes. It was orchestrated sometimes. I know the modern church doesn't believe that, but that's just because they don't know their biblical history. Um, It was orchestrated. They had praise teams. They had dance teams. All of that you can learn about, and I encourage you to do so. The tabernacle the tabernacle of David. In the same manner, we seek God's heart. In the same manner, we seek to rule as kings and priests and prophets. In the same manner. Now, there's so much more from the life of David. Many of you will remember, I think in 2015, I did a whole year um, on the life of David. And it, to this day, is probably the favorite, my favorite series that I've ever done. Someday, sometime we may do that again. Um, the life of David is so rich. But I am seeking seeking to know the heart of God, and I am seeking to be changed by the love of God. Um, I seek the beauty of the Lord. How do I get to know God? I have to listen. I have to ask. I have to seek. I have to knock. I pray. I minister to him, and then I listen, and let him minister to me. The priest has two roles. The priest ministers to God and the priest ministers to the people. And you see this in the New Testament church where we have um, the threefold cord of a successful church service where first of all, part of the service is about, is for God. It's worshiping and ministering to God. Part of that service is for you. It's God ministering to you. And part of that service is for the outsider. The court of the Gentiles. And we have to have all three in order to have this fulfilled in our, uh, uh, among us. So what am I trying to say? I want to know the heart of God. Uh, I want, I, I, I don't want to have a church culture or a Christian culture where people would never choose the God that I represent to them. And it's, it's possible for us to celebrate a God that no one would ever celebrate. Therefore, we have to convince them by fear. And then we wonder why fear doesn't work. Fear fails. It's love that never fails. We have to present God. Oh, hallelujah. Stand with me all across the house.
if you will make a new commitment right now to seeking the heart of God and being anointed like David, I want you to lift your hands in the presence of the Lord. And I want you to tell him right now your intention, the intention of your heart uh, to serve him in this manner. Lord Jesus, uh, we stand before you today and uh, we confess first our unworthiness. We confess first our propensity toward the flesh. Uh, The greatest challenge uh, in our life is not the enemy. It's not demonic forces. The greatest challenge is just that uh, we want what we want and we want you to serve us. We haven't fallen in love with with mercy. We haven't fallen in love with grace. We're not overwhelmed by the beauty of the Lord. We haven't been moved by the testimony of creation. We haven't been in some way challenged by the moral law that speaks within everybody. Lord Jesus, uh, let that in some way... to an end and let us begin rather to seek the beauty of the Lord. Help us when we talk to people to testify of a a Savior that uh, is a testimony of your heart, not an embarrassment to you, not a misapplication of your nature or goodness. The Lord Jesus, a celebration of who you are. We want to serve you with our, the days we have uh, left. We want to worship you with the breath in our lungs. We want to represent your love to a, a a, a people that 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 need hope. Uh, this generation is desperately without hope. Oh God, uh, we need hope, Lord Jesus. And the hope to the world does it, it comes through the church. It comes through the testimony of the church. It comes through the words of the church. In Jesus' name, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us. Thank you.